The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is <laughs> Friday, April 24th, 2020. Boris Johnson, uh, 10 Downing Street is casting doubt on whether he will really come back to work on Monday. But he had a phone call with Donald Trump who said it was an incredible call. He didn't say it was a perfect call, but he was, um, he was just amazed by how strong his energy was. So it's big suspense for Monday. Will Boris be back? We're not allowed to have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, we have this time for real Noah Feldman. Noah, welcome to the show. We were just talking, Noah, that we were going to call the show in lieu of Noah Feldman. <laughs> I guess I earned that one. Up again. Yes. I earned that one, yes. Too Welcome much, to the show. Thank you. Too many Zoom meetings, too much Zoom teaching, and general Zoom confusion. I think yes. if I had a I think if I had a sweatshirt like Ben's, everything would change for me though in life. Yeah. This it is, is like uh, a little disconcerting that it's only the eyes that are coming straight out of your chest, Ben. Yeah, no, no. It's like a three-dimensional dog shirt. I mean, it really is. Is that like one of those painting, one of those photographs by that guy? Is his name Wegman, who does the photographs of his of his dogs that are so beautiful? No, it's actually an uh, it's an awesome company. Uh, I think I forget what it's called that um, makes like three dimensional shirts, and they have like three dimensional. I have a great rhinoceros that's charging out at you, um, and they have you know like a suit of armor. Um, I, I think it's like fabulous. I have two of these dog shirts and I, I, when, you know, and I, I love them. Um, Kate, how much do I have to pay you to wear that to teach? Oh my gosh. Like not like you don't have to pay me. I wear like way, I wore my pink John Deere hat to teach the other day. Taught them some tractor law. But that's all hipstery. Come on. That's not the same. I know that's true. That's like, I do anything that's slightly, I mean, this is like, this is like norm culture over here. If I put that shirt on. <laughs> the the real question, drinking? Noah, the real question is how much would we have to pay you to wear this shirt while teaching? That is a good question. You don't have enough money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wait, Noah, um, what are you drinking? I am drinking bourbon. Oh, nice. What kind of bourbon? I'm drinking the Hudson uh, baby bourbon. Oh yeah, I like those. They're insanely tiny bottles. They um, are, but they actually started expensive. making, they started for some reason that I cannot understand. This is genuinely fascinating. They were ex extremely expensive, tiny bottles. At my star market, which is the same star market I've been going to since I was a child, they suddenly introduced the same thing in a full-size bottle for half the price. Hmm. I don't really? know what the math is, but it's the exact same thing. It tastes exactly the same and it costs a quarter of what it cost previously. <laughs> Wow. Well, that's great. Um, I am going to introduce Noah, but before I introduce Noah, Noah, it's the th it's the one month anniversary that we've been doing in lieu of show or in lieu of fun show. Um, I know it's actually a little bit like insane that it's been a whole month. Uh, but I made this, I made this um, video for Ben as a present. And so now I'm going to make you all watch it. Um, uh -oh. It's only one minute long. 
And I promise you will probably laugh or recognize some people um, and it will be funny. So hold on, let me share my screen here. Um, okay. Okay, there we go. awesome there you go ben <laughs> yeah you, you gotta you gotta um now noah you're gonna be on the two-month anniversary trailer that was amazing and I, I need to know why nate personally was in the cheers bar oh because i was also <laughs> in the cheers bar my background was the cast of cheers i can switch that to you if you want that's like it's my favorite background um although i like orans in the village vanguard yeah i know but that's because you have bad taste in music. I was going to say that's also a more unusual. I mean, it's conceivable that Nate could have been in the Cheers bar, but not conceivable that Oren could be in the Village Vanguard. He was giving a very, I guess that's in, right. He was giving a very good talk on like uh, on uh, election um, on elections in the time of pandemic as we were getting live news about what was happening in Wisconsin, which was kind of an incredible episode. It was really fun. But text me the uh, the link to that to that video so I can I so I can tweet it. Yes, I totally will. Um, yeah, that took me like most of the day. I was supposed to be writing my property <laughs> and internet law exams, but I was learning how to use iMovie instead. So I also liked seeing Jack Balkan because I just finished teaching my last classes of the semester, and I teach First Amendment, and I took First Amendment from Jack Balkan. I always tell the students on the last day of class when I teach Rosenberger case that the final in Jack Balkan's First Amendment class when I took it was the fact pattern for the Rosenberger case, which was before the court at the time. And then I tell them that I got a P in the class. And then they all feel much more relaxed before the exam. But I don't tell them at the beginning of the semester because I don't want them thinking that I got a P in First Amendment when I'm teaching First Amendment, but it is true. I remember looking through clerkship files, like thousands, I'm sure when you clerked, you did the same thing. The clerks have to look through all of the files for the next people who are gonna clerk for your judge. Um, <clears throat> and I remember looking through and making having no sense of what Harvard or Yale's system of grading was and being deeply resentful that I had to learn a new system of grading to understand how to adjudicate whether or not these were worthwhile people. Um, imagine imagine uh, adjuncting a class there and having to learn the system so that you can evaluate people and having no idea what those grades correspond to. Imagine being a full-time professor there having no idea what they're <laughs> <laughs> So for those of you who don't know, Harvard Law School has a 
uh, a system of grading that ranges from not passing to low pass. So does you. Pass to high pass to some special, you know, pour oil over olive oil, uh, anointing uh, deans, whatever. Um, and why they couldn't have just called that A, B, C, D, F, I'm really not sure. What is, I actually don't know, what is like the, the argument behind it? Do you know, Noah? Yeah, vaguely. I mean, Yale did it first, a long time before Harvard did it. And their idea was, I think it was under Guido Calabresi's dean. And the idea was our students are so awesome, it would be unjust to subject them to grades because they really all deserve the best grades because they're the best people in the best possible law school in the best of all possible worlds. And also they were off the off the um, treadmill. That was the other uh, point that Guido always made. So if you're off the treadmill, there can't be grades because on the treadmill, as everybody knows, there are grades, um, as every gerbil knows. Um, and then eventually Harvard decided it should copy Yale on the theory that there wasn't really a clear theory for it. But the idea was basically that maybe Yale was stealing some students by telling them that they weren't going to get grades, they should be more relaxed about it. I don't think it had any impact on who went to which law schools, but that was the that was the, but Harvard couldn't go all the way there. Nor, nor does it induce relaxation, nor does it induce relaxation among either Harvard or Yale students. I disagree. I was, I was yeah. a pretty relaxed Yale law student. I was going to say Yale law students are pretty relaxed. Boston will demonstrate, because it's not like Jack is a mean grade or anything. I just really sucked. <laughs> um, he says, I think I, I, ta I called him right before this, and he says that he retroactively changes your grade to a high pass. Really? Yes. That's a very sweet thought. I don't believe <laughs> that you would say that in a, in a moment, but if you, I think you he, said, the, he said I could tell you that. That's if what you, you told me. King or something like that, then you know that that would be okay. Yeah. So Noah, um, you testified in the impeachment proceedings, and oh, I we have, haven't even introduced Noah because I didn't. All right, go introduce him. Sorry, and then I'm Noah ask Feldman. Him, I'm going to ask him the impeachment question. Noah Feldman is almost so famous that you shouldn't have to know have an introduction for him, but I'll do it anyways. He, Harvard Law School professor. Um, <clears throat> he uh, is the author of um, a book, a wonderful book on Madison, which he likes to refer to as the size of a doorstop, but I actually think is quite wonderful. <laughs> and, uh, and the Iraqi constitution uh, was one of the authors that worked in the Iraqi constitution. We have gotten to know each other um, in working on the Facebook Oversight Board, which is the Court of Appeals. It's kind of coming out of Facebook um, for content moderation issues. Um, and he is, you have like a very, your expertise this last year could not have been called on in more ways, I think, um, as Ben is about to talk about. Um, the impeachment hearings, um, the Oversight Board, uh, all of the news it felt like kind of like the Noah Feldman hour, which is just fine with me in terms of like where we're getting our news from and like what's going on and smart people talking about things. So like, yeah, tell us like, Ben, ask your question about the impeachment hearings. I thought that like I was, that was where I was going to go too. So. Thank you for that nice introduction. Kate. So <laughs> you testified at the impeachment hearings. Uh, the thing did not work out the way you or for that matter, I would have urged or in your case did urge and in my case, nobody asked. Um, uh, how satisfied or dissatisfied are you 
with the process end to end, what it did, what it didn't do. Was it at the end of the day productive or was it at the end of the day uh, principally an illustration of how, how the only thing that really holds presidents in check is elections? I actually think it's a little bit of both. Um, this impeachment process, I think, was distinctive in that I believed going into it that there was almost no chance, very close to zero chance, that anything could emerge or would emerge or would be said under oath or otherwise that would lead the current members of the U.S. Senate to remove the president. I, I think the facts were pretty heavily known up front. There, of course, are some things we never did find out. Um, we never did hear that uh, John Bolton testimony, which in my view, we were never meant to hear. Um, but the bottom line is, had he said his worst, had he said the worst possible thing, had he said that Donald Trump told him, of course, there was a quid pro quo, and of course, we're doing that, I don't think that would have elicited a different reaction ultimately from the Senate. So in that sense, it's a little frustrating to be reminded of something we already know, which is that partisanship is just such a powerful force in contemporary American political life that it trumps even the knowledge, which I think a lot of Republican senators had within themselves, that this president was breaking constitutional norms that would ordinarily be considered high crimes and misdemeanors. So that part is, of course, frustrating and disappointing. But at the same time, there's another feature that this one had, and that is there was no choice, I felt in the end, for the Democrats but to impeach. And this is also why I myself agreed to testify. And it's basically this. You know, we have this constitutional structure and it means something. I'm not a relativist. I don't think the words mean just any old thing. They have some meaning. And that meaning is not determined by what the people who wrote it thought, but it's shaped in large part by what they thought. And they anticipated exactly a situation like this one. It's not like, what did the framers think about the smartphone? Where you're like, well, they didn't know what a smartphone was. It's hard to answer that question. They knew about you know, presidential manipulation. They knew about the dangers of foreign interference. They knew about trying to use the presidency to break an election. And they worried about all this stuff in very explicit ways. And once the transcript of the July 25 call had been released, to not impeach the president for the House would have inevitably and permanently been a way of Democrats saying, this is okay with us, this isn't a high crime. And so their choice was, admit that that's the case and let it go and let history say, no one thought this was a high crime the next time around, or step up, impeach, and let people say, well, the House thought it was a high crime and they were Democrats and the Senate thought it wasn't and they were Republicans and you make the call. And you know, I, I said this in the hearing and I actually believe it, you know, somewhere, somehow in some domain, the founding fathers are out there. You know, maybe we'll go to the good place or the bad place and meet them. And, you know, or, or in Madison's case, the boring place or Hamilton's place, the extremely interesting place. And they will want to know, like, what did you do when the Republic was subverted? And you want to be able to look them in the eye at a metaphorical level and say, this is what we did. We did something. So I think it had to be tried. And I am proud of that. I do actually think it really matters that the Democrats did not allow, you know, the political gamesmanship of thinking we're going to lose this. The public will think we lost. We might strengthen Trump. The Democrats might have gone down that road. They didn't. They stood up for principle. And there are times in life when you have to do that. And this was one of them. So do you think it meaningfully conditions 
the you said it might strengthen Trump. I don't think there's a lot of evidence that it did strengthen Trump. His um, his approval ratings are almost exactly what they were before the process. Um, do you think in in any meaningful sense it conditions the election in November, or is it just this sort of moral statement that needed to be made that you kind of do without reference to effects? It might have conditioned the elections in November if it weren't for COVID-19. I mean, I would say, you know, we're in a weird historical moment here, which is interestingly parallel in a certain respect to the way that the 9-11 attacks just closed to the topic of the Bush v. Gore decision at the Supreme Court. Right. From that's December- a, actually, that's the first time I've heard someone make that parallel. That's excellent. I think that that's actually true. Like there was, I forgot, I had almost, I actually completely forgot that that was still an ongoing debate and like 9-11 like killed it. Just ended it. Yeah. I mean, from December of 2000 to September 10, 2001, many people who cared about the constitution and elections thought that the Supreme Court stole the election and that George W. Bush's presidency was borderline illegitimate. And then what 9-11 showed us was not that that was false, but that it really didn't matter. There were more and, important things. And, and I think was, that's the way it looks now. You know, coronavirus, I don't think it's an existential threat to our society, though it threatens the deaths of many actual people or is killing many actual people, but it definitely is gonna have the historical effect, even in our moment of just changing the subject, probably permanently away from that impeachment effort until the day when we next want to impeach a president. And then it will all come back. And at that point, the principled thing will have some conditioning effects. So I want to I want to argue that there's a little bit more connective connective tissue between COVID-19 and the impeachment than uh, than that sharp break allows. Uh, there was really none between 9-11 and Bush v. Gore, I agree. Um, but there is this thread that runs between COVID-19 and impeachment, which is the president's extortionate demands on other leaders with respect to his own political advantage. And, uh, you know, one of your co-panelists when you were uh, testifying, Pam Carlin, uh, you know, had this rather in retrospect prescient hypothetical, which is what if instead of doing this to Zelensky, the president had done this to a state governor uh, in the wake of a national natural disaster. And, you know, when you go back and you listen to that tape now, uh, I actually thought it was a really good example at the time, um, but it reads really well right now. And the reason is that, you know, his behavior is not substantially different in this environment than it is in that. And the assertion that that is a perfect phone call is also an assertion that it is okay to strong arm, you know, Gretchen Whitmer or Gavin Newsom or, uh, or, you know, Chris, uh, not Chris Cuomo, uh, Andrew Cuomo. And I, I um, and so I wonder if there is a sense in which as people evaluate um, the performance in COVID-19, the kind of extortionate uh, immensely self-centered uh, and overtly political fashion that he does it is significantly conditioned in real ways 
by just having gone through this three, four month process of hearing about the way he engaged with Zelensky and also retaliated against, you know, Alex Vindman and, and uh, you know, and so when he threatens to fire Tony Fauci or retweet something about firing Tony Fauci, that's playing against a backdrop that, you know, it's, it's kind of like a movie we played before, but, you know, it could be, it was a comedy that time, but it's a tragedy now. Can I just say though, I mean, I love Pam and thought her testimony was very compelling in many ways. Um, I think possibly though that comment that she made very presciently sort of has the opposite effect from the standpoint of impeachment, right? I mean, I think when we today see the president doing all the things that you're describing, which are absolutely, you know, fulfillments of Pam's hypothetical, I think what most of us think now is he is a terrible president. This is unpresidential. This is wrong. I don't think people are thinking this is impeachable. And in that sense, it substantially undercuts her argument. I mean, I think the strongest response to that version of her argument was the argument, I mean, no one actually made this because people weren't honest enough to, to make it really, but the argument that Trump's just a terrible president within the realm of ordinary badness, but that it's not impeachable to engage in these kind of threats. And I don't know, it's hard to make out the case that his, you know, threatening of, you know, the governors of Michigan or California, even to take it further, his willingness to condition aid to states that have Americans dying in them on his political viewpoint, though it's repugnant, and I think it is repugnant, I think most people think it's not impeachable. Now, maybe they think that because he wasn't, he wasn't successfully removed from office, but I'm not sure that's the case. I, so I, that's, my, that's my response to that. So I want to kind of, so that's a great point. And I think that that's, so basically you're saying that like, okay, what impeachment is for is two standards of deviation away from the normalcy of a presidency, but he's in the one standard deviation away from the normalcy of a presidency, edging on the second standard of deviation away. And so there should be some type of like, that's kind of how I hear it. Like, that's kind of how I hear like, like I'm not to empiricize it, but to kind of like hearing kind of what you're saying, that there's a level at which he's still in the realm of like normal or understandable human behavior, right? He's not like some mad child king or something like that, bread of incest, right? That's like gotten this type of like, right? Like, Wouldn't no, but I'm like, I'm trying to imagine what I mean, would be the standard I, of deviation away. So I didn't mean that because I don't think it is about like quantitative standard deviations. I thought that the reason for impeachment, and I said this under oath, and I still think it, is that he tried to, not that he conditioned uh, aid to Ukraine, but he conditioned aid to Ukraine on the announcement of an investigation designed to destroy the political career of his chief opponent. Yes. That was what was impeachable about it. And what he's doing now is nasty. It's repulsive. It doesn't serve the interests of Americans, but it's not in an attempt to break the election. In fact, he's more or less going to lose the votes of people in all of those states. I mean, I don't think he did himself any favors in Michigan, which is a state that he needs by his attacks on their relatively popular governor. So to me, it's not, I, I don't think of this as like, if it's pretty bad, it's not impeachable. If it's really bad, it's impeachable. I don't think it's a continuum like that. I think there's a bright line. And the bright line in this case was using the presidency to cheat in the election. Because if you can use the presidency to cheat in the election, democracy won't work. 
Whereas if you're just a jerk or a terrible president, democracy can still work. So it's like, if you're gonna, if what you do breaks the election, it's impeachable. If it's not gonna break the election under those conditions, I don't think it's impeachable. So you, so you actually think his current conduct is less objectionable than, I mean, or, or more, more addressable within the realm of normal politics than his conduct during uh, the uh, Ukraine affair. It's more morally objectionable because people are obviously dying in real time. I mean, people may have died by the withholding of aid to Ukraine, but that's a rather attenuated account. Right. Morally, this is more objectionable, but constitutionally, it's less objectionable because it is remediable by election. And the whole point of having impeachment, and you know, again, I'm not making this up. Like this is what the framers literally discussed. And we've got a pretty close to a, you know, pretty close to a transcript of it in notes taken by Madison. Not that there's a per perfect notes, but they are pretty darn good for these days in which they literally said, well, maybe we don't need impeachment because we're gonna have elections. And then the answer was very strongly made by multiple, multiple people. Well, that doesn't cover the situation where the president is distorting the election results. And that's why they were like, you know what, good point. And that's where, you know, Gouverneur Morris, who would introduce the idea of taking impeachment out altogether was like, you know what, I changed my mind. I was wrong. I didn't think of this scenario. And that's the scenario we were in. So the constitutional remedy isn't based on its moral wrongness. It's based on it breaking the democratic system. And so it's we're morally worse to act the way that Trump is acting, leading to direct deaths, than it is to act that way towards Ukraine, but it's not constitutionally impeachable. So I want to, so is this why, like I was really, so now this is all making, starting to click into place. Like I only saw part of it, but you had a debate over Twitter with um, Trot, Lawrence Trot, Larry Tribe and like, and Marty Lederman and like a bunch of other people about like basically whether or not Trump had been impeached like impeached formally under like the proceedings. And I like, and I think that a lot of people were like, this is beside the point, who cares whether he has been formally impeached. And now it's kind of really making sense to me that if you really don't think that the constitution has like that, how firmly you believe that the constitution is separate from some type of moral or natural law, that like this makes sense to you. This, like this distinction makes a lot of sense and is very, very important um, versus people who were just kind of like, we, who cares whether or not he's been impeached or not and the papers have been delivered. Is that kind of correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I like that. I mean, this, this particular fight, which was a kind of intramural fight among people who thought that Trump was lousy. It truly, Trump, it truly was. It was like the weirdest I, fight. I remember like, are you guys arguing about like the equivalent of the mailbox rule? And like, it sort of was that, but it did matter, at least in my view. Um, and, you know, and ultimately enough people paid attention to it to make me think that maybe it did matter, even though a lot of people may have paid attention in the form of saying this doesn't matter, when enough people are paying attention that way, it starts to matter. And, you know, it started not on Twitter. It started with a piece that I wrote in Bloomberg and before that, that Larry Tribe had written in the Washington Post. And, you know, Larry Tribe's idea was that you could pass articles of impeachment, but then say that Trump had been impeached, but he couldn't be tried. And the idea was to somehow cleverly trap the president where he couldn't get himself off you know, of the, of the impeachment charge. And I just thought that was breaking the system. It wasn't treating the system in terms of basic fairness. And yeah, to me, the reason that tech, apparently technicality mattered is that impeachment is supposed to be the thing that triggers a trial and therefore it implies some basic fairness. And you can't trigger a trial and then say, ha ha, you can't defend yourself in the trial. It doesn't work that way. You know, at that point, 
you, I was saying this to Larry Tribe, if you do this, you're no better than they are. You know, you have to actually, the way that the Democrats have to play this is to play by the rules, because the whole point of impeachment is to say that the president didn't follow the rules. And so where exactly. I'm agreeing with you, Kate, is that I am saying that I do believe that on a whole bunch of points, the Constitution actually lays down rules. They are real rules. They are real rules of the game. We need the rules. And the other side shouldn't break the rules. And we shouldn't break the rules. Except that when you did that, the effect of doing that with the president that we have right now meant that like your talking points became his like imaginary, like crazy talking points. He retweeted you saying like, I haven't been impeached. I haven't been impeached. I'm not really impeached. And it became like Zeno nonsense for a bunch of people who have no capacity. I mean, I'm not trying to sound elitist here, but like who are not going to understand the nuance that you just he, but like what made with the was rules. True, Kate. It was true. Nancy Pelosi was holding the articles of impeachment and therefore he hadn't yet been impeached. I mean, it's not, so it's not, people said that to me, like, how dare you say something that'll make Trump happy? That's not my job description. I mean, my job description is to try to tell the truth about the constitution. And I didn't go up there to say under oath, that he ought to be impeached because I hate him. Right. That's not why I did it. I did it because I study the constitution and I know that he violated the constitutional standards. And that's why I said it under oath. It wasn't my opinion. It was as close to a fact as I'm able to express. And similarly on the same terms, it's my job to say impeachment happens when you bring it over to the Senate and start the trial. And so I, I just like my Republican friends and even my Trump supporting friends were really mad at me for testifying. They were like, what are you even doing? You know, similarly, Democrat friends, some of them were really mad at me. Democratic friends were some of them really mad at me for saying he's not impeached yet. And I have the same answer to both. You know, like I'm telling you the truth. There are rules. It's not all relativism. It's not anything goes. A lot of people in this country think that anything goes when it comes to law, when it comes to the constitution. I think the president sometimes thinks that. And that's wrong. That is not a way to run a rule of law system. You can't run it that way. There have to be institutional rules and they have to be followed. And if they're All right, not let's talk about the other side of that coin. The Senate is uh, charged with trying impeachments. It has a standing set of rules, uh, which it did not follow. Um, on the other hand, it has plenary power under the constitution to make its own rules. And it voted not to follow its rules. As I read its rules, it requires 67 votes to override them. Uh, as the majority leader reads it, it doesn't. Um, did the Senate do its job and in what sense? If not, did it not? What was, what was the rule it was obligated to follow that it didn't? Or is it just a, or is that one just a trial is whatever the Senate says a trial is? I mean, I think that the Senate had a constitutional duty to hold a trial. And I am not sure they really held a trial, right? I mean, they heard arguments on both sides. They didn't allow important facts to be entered into the record. They didn't call witnesses who had stuff to say. They made a completely absurd argument that all of the testimony should have been heard in the House, which is exactly backwards. I mean, right. in the historical impeachment process, it wasn't the lower house, whether the House of Representatives or Parliament, that ran the trial. It was the upper house, the Senate of the House of Lords that ran the trial. In fact, it would have been perfectly constitutional for the House to impeach with no gathering of evidence. Right. They could have just said, we think this guy is bad, we impeach him. And that's so they flipped the historical norms. 
they evacuated the word trial of its ordinary language meaning. So all that I think is true. But as you correctly say, Ben, there's no one who can do anything about that because in the end, practically speaking, they're the judges of what a trial is. So if you know if we were before the court of heavenly judgment and we said, you know, did you know, did Mitch McConnell break his vow, you know, or his oath sworn before Almighty God to uphold the Constitution? I think I would say, yeah, he he broke his oath. Is there any earthly power that can constrain him in that regard? No. Yeah, I he, actually think McConnell that's a great and point. His God, should such a being exist? Tony Kava, you have a question. But you gotta uh, yes, unmute yourself. I do I think I'm unmuted? Can you guys hear me? We yep. can. Excellent. Hey, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm, but I am interested in kind of what was going on in your head, and you may have answered this in your uh, your last comments. But it struck me watching the impeachment quote unquote trial that Trump's legal team was really misrepresenting the evidence presented by the House. And it was kind of the same misrepresentations kind of over and over and over again over a period of days. And it struck me that there's the room is full of intelligent people. So everyone kind of knew that's what they were doing, uh, including the Chief Justice. And I can only assume that you kind of knew that that's what was going on. So I'm kind of curious what was going on in your head during all that time. Thank you for that great question. Um, what I'm going to say is going to be weird, so bear with me, okay, Tony? <laughs> okay. So first is I agree with everything you just said. That's not the weird part. The, the defense team, um, with the possible exception of Alan Dershowitz, misrepresented what everyone knew to be true. They just systematically mistold the story. And here's the weird part. I was thrilled by that because it was better than the other thing. So what was the other thing? The other thing was the Alan Dershowitz view, according to which Donald Trump, of course he did all the things he's accused of doing, and that didn't violate the Constitution. So, you know, Tony, there's this great, ex uh, great ex expression, which I think goes back to La Rochefoucauld, which says that um, uh, hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue which sounds you know, irritating in 18th century in French, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Hypocrisy is what we do to acknowledge that we have moral standards, even though in real life we're breaking them. So when the president's defenders got up there and said, he didn't, you know, he, he didn't do these things, he didn't do these things, that was just hypocrisy. They were acknowledging that a president who did those things would be doing something really terrible, but they were implicitly acknowledging that by saying he didn't do it, even though we all know he did do it. Because consider the alternative. The alternative, the Dershowitz position said, you know, the Constitution doesn't prohibit you from trying to break the elections in order to get reelected. That's dangerous. That's much worse than hypocrisy. That's openly and arrantly saying that the Constitution doesn't protect against that kind of conduct. And so I actually, even though I agree with everything you said, what was going through my mind is that I preferred the hypocrisy, which acknowledged that there should be rules to the bold-faced chutzpah, to use a book that was, you know, Alan, made a, Alan Dershowitz actually made the, he wrote a famous book called Chutzpah. Um, and, you know, the chutzpah of saying, it's fine, president can do all these things and it doesn't violate the constitution. Kate, I see you switched to scotch, that's a good thing. 
I did. Um, I'm yes, I'm drinking scotch. I am. So I'm going to, but I'm going to like, so basically what I'm hearing from you is if you have this entire um, governmental system that's built on not natural law, but a constitutional system of rules in which hypocrisy can, can reign, um, where virtue has a second seat, uh, I feel like you have to acknowledge that then that the only place for virtue is in the ballot box and that the only place for like social norms and the, in the, in the violation of social norms is in the ballot box, that impeachment has no place. Uh, ha- like there is nothing in impeachment for like social norms or like, or virtue violation that if we feel like Trump has broken some type of strict constitutional rule, we have impeachment. And barring that, anything short of that, the only chance that the citizenry has, no matter what the, the what, what virtues or what um, natural law a president um, uh, violates is to wait till four years. Is well, I, I, mostly agree, I mostly agree with that, Kate. And that's, that's, by the way, not just the constitution, that's law generally. No, I know, but like, I'm just trying to like, I'm just kind of actually bringing it all together, I guess is what I'm trying to say. There's a million totally immoral things that we do every day that are not punished by law and they shouldn't be punished by law. If they were punished by law, then we could be punished for them. I mean, there's a lot of overlap, right? You know, you- Think of all those tags you've removed from pillows. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's lots of immoral You're allowed things. to rip those off, dude. You can rip those off. <laughs> like Once you buy the stupid mattress, you can rip off the stupid tags. It's really simple. <laughs> I was joking. Okay, sorry. That was a good PSA though. But you know, there's lots of immoral things that are against the law and it's good that they're against the law, but there are some immoral things that aren't against the law and you shouldn't be punished those for those in the legal system, full stop. And impeachment is like that. Impeachment is a legal process. It's not just a, we hate you, we're going to remove you. You know, if it were that, then we wouldn't need we wouldn't need it. Then we could just have elections. But as for political virtue, Kate, I mean, the system can't survive without political virtue in the electorate. That's the ultimate measure, and that's what's to my mind really up. What's going to happen in you know in November? I mean, there's a lot of other there are a lot of excuses that can be made for Trump voters. I've made them in the past about 2016, but in the end, I actually do believe that this is a test of you know, whether we have the collective political virtue to vote the guy out of office. And if we don't, it's on us. Yeah. Not on him, on us, not on him. Ben? I think it's on him too, but, um, but I agree with you that it is ultimately on us. Well, let's shift gears and talk about the Facebook oversight board. Yeah. Um, so we talked to, we talked to Evelyn about this a bit. Um, it was, it is, I just got a text literally as we're talking, um, from Facebook, uh, that says that it is looking like it is, uh, on for the mid to early part of May. Um, and, uh, they're going to be announcing the board members, which is incredibly exciting. Um, I have been doing this for over a year. You have been doing this for over 18 months, night, more than that. Wait, wait, more than that. More than like, like 36 months. Since January, since no, just since January of, uh, 2020, what year are we? 2019. Yeah. I've been at it for, I've been at it for two, sorry, 20 January, 2018. So I've been at it for a year, two years and a few months. 
Yeah. So 36 months. That's like basically what it was. Yeah. So I think that's, but like, but you know, um, we have both been deeply involved um, and the, uh, on, and I have not been consulting, but I've been observing and you have been consulting and like, there has been, uh, to, to read everyone into the room, the Facebook oversight board is poised to be kind of one of the first moments in which a private platform that governs online speech jettisons a portion of its power, uh, to, uh, the, uh, not the electorate, because there's still not going to be elections, but to the user base in which it kind of governs, uh, uh, whose speech it governs. And um, I have been observing that for the last 12 months, the making of that of that board. Noah has been, wrote the initial proposal that got adopted by Facebook um, to for this to happen as consultant on this kind of consistently over the last uh, two and a half years while it's been happening. Um, I will just say that there is no doubt in my mind at this point, although that was not the case a year ago, no doubt in my mind that at this point, that this is going to be the future of online speech, that this is going to be a moment that is a sea change for things to move forward. In the last week alone, I've had three phone calls with three completely different entities that are all speaking about trying to create some type of standards-based organization that deals with this type of thing and want to harness what has been created by Facebook and the oversight board or want to mimic it. And so this is just, and this is coming from all types of private and public entities. And I just think that this is going to be um, all the more important as we like kind of transition out of the COVID phase and the pandemic and the quarantine into a, into like a standard understanding of like what online speech means and who's governing it and like how important it is. It's, as I've said many times in this show, the end of like internet exceptionalism for online speech. Um, But Noah, tell us a little bit about your story of like starting uh, starting out and talking about, uh, and like how you started talking to Facebook about the oversight board. Yeah, well, thank you for that great introduction and, and description of it. Um, so in the fall of 2017, I guess, I, like a lot of people who teach First Amendment law, was just trying to figure out how free speech is being changed in an era where so much expression is on social media platforms. And you know, I, I, don't, I barely know a First Amendment professor who hasn't like said, I'm gonna to try to write a book or an article about this. Um, and so I was doing a lot of research and thinking really hard about it. And it was just when I had finished my Madison biography and I was sort of thinking about, you know, inevitably a little bit influenced by what I had been reading and because Madison was central in the creation. He drafted the First Amendment. He made the first arguments for the First Amendment. Um, and the, the thing that most obsessed me was that it seemed like Facebook and the other social media platforms were being lobbied by sophisticated organized lobbying groups that wanted them to take down all kinds of content. And for for good reasons, hate speech, offensive speech, harmful speech. But it seemed like nobody was lobbying them really in a serious way to leave up speech, to protect free speech values. And so I thought to myself, that's a little weird because we know as a general rule from politics um, that if there's a concentrated interest group fighting for something, it usually gets it. Even if many, many people are on the other side, even if a majority of people are on the other side, but care about it in a more diffuse way. So that's the story of the gun lobby. It's the story of the Cuba lobby. It's the story of the Israel lobby. You know, none of these things are nefarious in terms of how they work. They're above board in terms of how they work. It's just that a concentrated lobby tends to win. So I thought to myself, that's gonna mean that the concentrated lobby to take content down is gonna keep on winning. 
And so free expression on social media platforms is just going to go down and down and down. And I went for a, I was in Stanford actually speaking at Michael McConnell's seminar, um, uh, his Lidlon Religion program about my Madison book. And I went for a long, I rented a bike and went for a long bike ride up in the hills outside of uh, Palo Alto. And it was much too hard for me. And I, you know, I beat myself up and, you know, your brain kind of goes into a weird place. And somewhere on the way downhill from old La Honda, I just, these words popped into my head, like Facebook needs a Supreme Court. And by the time I got to the bottom, the idea was pretty fully formed. It was basically this. There's a reason that governments have Supreme Courts and constitutional courts to protect free speech. It's because governments are no different from the media platforms. They will constantly be lobbied by people who want to put down speech. They won't be lobbied by anyone who wants free speech. So you create an independent entity that can't be lobbied and you assign it some principles of free expression. And if you do that, it can defend free expression. So then I thought, well, that's half the battle. All I have to do now is convince Facebook of it. And I actually didn't think I'd be able to. I, I got home, I got off the bike, didn't even shower, I sat down, I wrote up a thousand word description of my idea so I didn't forget it. Um, and I was going to send it out for publication and I showed it to Sheryl Sandberg, whom I knew from college. And I said, does this seem right to you? And she said, well, I don't know if it's right or not. In fact, I'm not sure it's right at all, but can I show it to Mark before you, Mark Zuckerberg, before you publish it? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And then she came back to me a few days later and said, Mark wants to talk to you. And so I talked to him and then I, of course, never published it because I thought, wait, wait a minute, if the company is actually interested, then better to try to make it real than just have it be an idea out there in the academic world. And I think in retrospect, the reason that Mark was really interested in this is that unbeknownst to me, he had really been thinking very seriously about the question of devolving power away from Facebook. He had wanted, it turns out, for years to move some of the power of decision-making away from the company. And this was a way to potentially do that without running into some of the problems of, for example, elections. Because if you do voting, you run into what they call the voting McVote phase problem, right? If people on social media platforms vote for somebody or online vote for something, they can vote for ridiculous things. There's no one to really do anything about it because the stakes aren't so high for them. And so, you know, then they got interested and it was a long process of trying to convince them of it. Um, and there were lots of good arguments against it and some good arguments for it. And I think really just because Mark was behind it, it got adopted. I mean, I think in a company that didn't have um, Facebook's weird structure with a founder who remains, you know, the most powerful person in the company with respect to the shares, it really might not have happened. Um, so I'm thinking it was in, ultimately it was Mark's commitment to the idea and his advocacy of it and his insistence on it that really made it happen. And I think just last but not least, you know, Kate, you mentioned that others are interested in doing this. That is my fondest wish. I mean, if this could have been at launch industry-wide, I think everyone would have been thrilled with that. I think Facebook would be thrilled with that. I'd be thrilled with it. I don't think that that was realistic. And I still, I don't think that's even the future direction that we're gonna see. I think we're gonna see different actors who have different platforms with different values adopting their own things. And I think that's actually great. That kind of pluralism is great. But explain something to me, because there's a premise here that I didn't realize was central to the idea, but that I'm having a little trouble with as a factual matter. So your analogy was, well, they need a Supreme Court because the Supreme Court can't be lobbied. Now, it is true that you know, lobbyists cannot just walk up to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and lean on her, um, uh, among other things, because she's ethically barred from having those conversations with them. But um, 
that's not true of somebody who's uh, hired in some level by Facebook who, you know, I can email, I can write to, I can socialize with, had some sort of external life during which people are allowed to just talk to them. And so my, my question is, what is the form of the insulation from political lobbying that you're imagining protecting these institutions? Ben, it's actually a lot like the Supreme Court. So let's be clear, you can talk to Ruth Ginsburg anytime you want, if you have the patience, and if you don't have coronavirus, right? I mean, you can't lobby the Supreme Court justices in the sense that it would violate their ethical obligations if they listened to you make an argument on behalf of a party. But there's no rule that says, to take a better example than Justice Ginsburg, who's, you know, who's particularly um, cautious and careful in everything that she says, well, it used to be in everything she said, but certainly in everything she does. Take, you know, Justice Breyer, who's more- um, More out there. You know, he could be at a dinner party in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and, you know, everyone is careful not to talk to him about a case that's pending before them. But he talks about constitutional values and constitutional ideas and cases he's been involved in. And you can say whatever you want in that dinner party and Steve Breyer doesn't get up and walk out of the room right. because he's not influencing the outcome in a case. Similarly, the Facebook oversight board members have signed a pledge, will, will have signed a pledge that is memorialized in the charter and in their bylaws that says that they will not be lobbied by people who are parties to the particular cases that are gonna come before them and they can't take any money from them and they can't consult for them and they can't do business for them. And they also like Supreme Court justices can't go out there and just talk about their decisions. They're supposed to let their decisions speak for themselves. In fact, in certain respects, they're even bound by ethical norms that are slightly more rigorous than the US Supreme Court is because there's actually no law that says the justices can't talk about their decisions. Some of them do it, some of them don't, but they can once they've decided something, they can go ahead and talk about it to, to their heart's desire if they wish to. And some of them really will do that, although some won't. But the Facebook oversight board members aren't even supposed to do that. They're supposed to let the, the opinion speak for themselves. So it's a pretty similar form of insulation. The other thing is that there's an incentive structure, right? They can't make any money from that. And the money that they'll make will just be money they'll be paid by a trust that Facebook has established, an independent trust. And they're not going to be, you know, having business opportunities with the parties that have, that, that are, that are in, in the cases in front of them. But to that point, I think that this is actually, um, I, I mean, and I agree with everything that you said, and I think this is fascinating. Um, obviously, I've spent a, a, a year like watching this happen. But like, one of the things that I think is fascinating is that like, I think Nate Persley, who's been on the show before, Nate Persley kind of said in a meeting, in a workshop, when we were talking about all of this, how is this going to get legitimacy? And this was before, I would say that like, for a solid six to nine months of the process of starting this entire thing, the massive concern was like, how are we ever going to create legitimacy around this? And when I say we, I mean like Facebook, like how are we going to make people buy into this idea and think that it's real? And as Nate has pointed out over and over again, like, listen, no one thought the Supreme Court was a real thing for like a really long time. Like oh, it took a- Until 1803. Like, what? until 1803. Right, exactly. And like, there was basically like, you know, you have to have your Marbury versus Madison moment. You have to have some type of moment in which you bought into which everyone buys into this regime. And people don't think you're just a bunch of clowns in black gowns and white wigs 
running around doing this or like a bunch of people, I think is basically will be the Facebook oversight board, a bunch of people on zoom publishing decisions onto a website. Um, uh, and so to that extent, I want to briefly show this video, uh, which I found in the 2000, in 2000, this is from 2009 Facebook, um, that is Mark Zuckerberg giving a talk on his early, um, his early thoughts on what was called the Facebook um, governance project at the time. Community has grown a lot over the last few years, and at 200 million, this population would be the fifth largest country in the world, just ahead of Brazil. A community that large and engaged needs a more open process and a voice in governance. That's why a month ago, we announced a more transparent and democratic approach to governing the Facebook site. Since that time, users and experts from around the world have read and offered comments on the documents that we've proposed, the Facebook principles and the statement of rights and responsibilities. We've read all of these comments and we've created new drafts of the documents based on the feedback that we've received. Now we want you to vote and share with us which documents you think should govern Facebook. I hope you take a minute or two to vote and also to fan the Facebook site governance page, which will keep you informed on future proposed policy changes to the site. Thank you. So I just kind of love that, not just because it's a throwback, but because so many of the terms that he's, what do you say? Mark's wearing a tie. Yeah, he's wearing a freaking tie. Like, right? He looks so baby faced, right? Two, like, there is just this, like, it shows this, like, kind of, as you just said, this early commitment to, like, jettisoning this power of, like, like making this, like, about governance or, like, doing this thing. Three, he mentions fanning a page, which is like language that has disappeared and no longer matters. I don't remember what it meant. Yeah. What do you say? I don't even remember what that meant. It meant that you used to become a fan. You didn't join a page. You fanned a page. Like you became a fan of a page. It was like, sorry, I am just such an early Facebook user that like all, I remember all of these little moments, but like. Did you used to poke people? Yes, completely. Completely, completely poked people. That was like a thing. In fact, a lot of my friends, frankly, who were gay and were not yet out in college because I was like, went to college at the cusp of people coming out, like knew that people were gay. Other men were gay because men, gay men poked them. That was like, that was like a thing that, that was like a, like a jocular, like girls and boys could flirt with like, people of the same or opposite sex by poking them. And that was like an entire thing. And it was socially acceptable. It didn't really mean that you were gay. You could just be being friendly. But if you were gay, you kind of knew that it meant that you were gay. And so That's there was like this whole thing that happened. And like, but anyways, but this is, but these are the subculture genres that this, that this platform created that are so meaningful to so yeah. many people's lives let alone like what we have going on now in the pandemic that I just think are really important. And I do think that I just kind of, I showed that video because I think it proved your point to in a lot of ways, Noah. Um, I, I want to ask you a question about, about the relationship between that video and the oversight board. So that video suggests what the substantive law that the oversight board would be interpreting is, which is some set of constitutive documents, whether it's the statement of principles or the rights and responsibilities. 
but what's the jurisdictional reach of the oversight board? Is it responsible only for reviewing takedown decisions? Is it any dispute that anybody has with Facebook? What's the parameters of, of what it oversees? So a truly lawyerly question. So um, I'm not a lawyer. I know, but you spend a lot of time with them. So there you go. That's why I <laughs> if you were a lawyer, I wouldn't say it was a lawyerly question because you punched me or something. Um, <laughs> um, the, um, the range, what, what, what Facebook calls the scope of what the Facebook oversight board is going to do is going to expand with time. So right out of the box, they will probably start just with cases where Facebook has taken down content, but they might actually jump right away to, in addition to that, also considering cases where I think they should take down content based on their rules and their values, and they have chosen not to take it down. Because after all, that's just as important, right? If I think you're advocating a genocide of my people and Facebook doesn't agree and doesn't take it down, that's just as important to me, maybe more important to me than if they have taken down some content and I want to say it, and I think that my speech has been, my free expression has been violated. So very quickly, they will cover both of those things. Um, there will be some things that will inevitably be carved out. One is situations where um, a government whose laws Facebook has agreed to follow and which has legitimately done so is requiring some content to be taken down because you can't have the board requiring, Facebook has promised it will do what the board tells it, so the board can't be in a position of telling Facebook telling it to do something illegal, do something illegal. Um, it could say to Facebook sometimes, we know you have to do this because the law of this country requires it, but we think it sucks. And we think it's against free expression. And actually, I think that would be very productive if the board had the opportunity to say that under some circumstances. Yeah, to, to, to note the objection to removing material critical of the king of Thailand. Exactly. In, to say in Thailand. This is the law in Thailand and we get that, but we think this is inimical to free expression. So last question for me, how do I get on this board? This sounds really interesting. I want Oh in. man, you, you want to send me a, you want to send me a fucking email? Like I must, I don't know about you, Noah, but I get like, I've gotten like 30 emails from randos, like being like, Hey Kate, you're covering the oversight board. How do I, how like, can I get on it? How do, can I get on the oversight board and like yeah. delete? <laughs> I just don't even, <laughs> anyways. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I wish Ben had said that before before this first tranche of board is about to be announced. I think <laughs> on the freaking board. Um, but um, the point is they're, they're gonna- I was kidding, you know. They're gonna announce a first tranche of people, but I think the board, depending on how much work it has, it may expand from the original numbers, which will be in the neighborhood of 20 names that they'll announce. It may expand from that. I mean, it really depends on how many cases they have and whether the workload requires it. And also on, you know, it's very hard to achieve genuine global diversity with just 20, 20 odd people. So for both of those reasons, casework and diversity, they may expand the board over time. So there will be more opportunities. Um, there was, believe it or not, like a portal up this whole time where you could go to the portal and say, here's my CV, I wanna be on the board. Um, and so, and there are a lot of people on the board whom I did not know and did not know of, the vast majority, who um, either put themselves forward or often were put forward by other people um, who participated in various workshops around the board and so surfaced um, by virtue of their care about it, who were writing about these issues. Um, so, I mean, there, you know, people should be able to put themselves forward and self-nominate 
And as the selection process evolves, um, this initial group was selected in, in sort of consultation between the chairs of the board and Facebook itself. Um, but of course the chairs, someone had to pick the chairs and in the end it was Facebook that picked the chairs. But next time around, it'll be the chairs and the, the membership committee of the board that's doing the selecting. So mm -hmm. it'll be a portal and you'll be able to apply and say, I wanna be on this board. But um, it won't be done with presidential nomination and advice and consent of the Senate. Not gonna be done that way and it shouldn't be. <laughs> It really shouldn't be done that way. It needs yeah. to be much, much more independent than that. I think one other last thing to say about the membership is it's not going to be like the you know, Americans, unlike people in almost every other country in the world, when they think about the Supreme Court, or, which is our constitutional court, they tend to think, oh, we know how every case is going to come out by counting heads. You know, there are nine justices, we, you know, four are liberal, four, four, five are conservative. We know how the law come out. Um, this is not going to be like that because the lines of liberal and conservative are much less clear in the free expression space. Even among those Americans on the board, and there'll be some liberals and some conservatives, some of the liberals will have stronger free expression views than the conservatives, some of the conservatives more free expression views than the liberals. And then there'll be people from all over the world whose views aren't going to correspond to some clear political predilection. And after all, in almost every country in the world, no one thinks they can count heads and get judgments of their constitutional court. That's yeah. a distinctly weird American practice. This is going to be more like all the other constitutional courts in the world where people have different perspectives, they have different values, with any luck it'll be a collegial body. It's not going to be one of those all depending on which panel is that decides the case that's going to give us the outcome. And that's going to be an educative process for Americans. It's not going to require much education for the other, you know, 2.1 billion Facebook users who aren't Americans. I mean, remember, Facebook has 2.3 billion users now. In that video, Mark said, what, 200 plus million users are more than 10 times bigger than that now kind of crazy. Um, but you know, for them, for that means the overwhelming majority of the users of Facebook are not Americans. And for them, it's going to be normal, they don't expect to be able to like politicize the decisions of a constitutional court. And it's going to be pretty hard to politicize these decisions too. And that's by design. The idea is to create a body that gen generates legitimacy by its logic, by its reasons by standing up to Facebook, which it will have to do to get legitimacy. Um, not by you know, this one's conservative and this one's liberal. No, I completely agree with that. And um, we have to wrap, but I, Noah, could you come back like after like the, the after the announcement of the of the board and hopefully talk to us a little bit about it? That would be really great to have you. I think that this is gonna be huge. I just, I mean, I'm not just saying that cause I'm working on it, but I think that like basically like there's a like online speech means more now than ever. And I'm just seeing so many new things evolve. And so it just, I think that this is going to be great to have a, like a longer conversation about. Yeah. Kate, I mean, as those viewers probably know, you know, Kate's work opened this whole field and now a lot of stuff is happening in the field. And this is one of the things that's happening. And yeah, I'd love to come back and talk about it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Noah, for yeah, thanks for in. joining Cheers. us. <laughs> so we will be back tomorrow. It is uh, tomorrow is Saturday when we don't have a guest, but we just rapture people in from the audience to chat with us. Uh, so uh, please join us. We'll be back at five. We will plan the show for next week. And remember, you know, if you can't have fun, in lieu of fun. Oh, wait, I had our tagline. Our tagline today. Oh, what's is, our tagline today? Oh, faces made for podcasts. That's what we are. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, uh, uh, with our faces made for podcasts, uh, you can still hang out with us in lieu of fun. Cheerio.
Bye. Bye-bye.